Joshua Chamberlain was actually a theology student. Eventually, he became a professor. But when duty called, he became a colonel. A colonel in the 20th Maine Volunteer Infantry Regiment, Union Army. And on July the 2nd, 1863, he and 300 soldiers stood between the Confederates and a certain defeat at a battlefield in Gettysburg. The Confederates charged once, twice, three times, four, five, until there were only 80 soldiers left standing with Chamberlain. He, on that day, was actually knocked down by a bullet. It hit him in the belt buckle. It was not his day to go, so he got back up. And when he learned that no reinforcements were coming, he learned that his men were down to one round of ammo per soldier, and the lookout said the Confederates were forming rank again. The rational thing to do is surrender. But Chamberlain made a defining decision that changed the war, and I'm going to say saved the Union. With 80 men in place, Chamberlain gave the call, charge, and 80 soldiers started running forward. It ranks as one of the most improbable victories in all of military history. 80 soldiers captured some 4,000 Confederate soldiers in a matter of minutes. Historians believe that if Chamberlain had not charged that day, then it is most likely that the Confederates would have gained the high ground. And if the Confederates would have gained the high ground, the chance is they would have probably won the battle at Gettysburg. And if they won the battle at Gettysburg, it is most likely they probably would have won the war. Years later, Chamberlain reflected back on the war with these words. I had deep within me the inability to do nothing. I love that. Had to do something. I had deep within me the inability to do nothing. I knew that I may die, but I also knew that I would not die with a bullet in my back. Let me translate. I will not run away. We have arrived today at the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke where we discover that Jesus by this time has identified just over 80 men who seem willing to charge. They have heard the explanation of what it's going to cost if they choose to follow Jesus, and these 80-plus men are willing to face an enemy who is stronger than any human army ever assembled. But the key is the commander-in-chief of the 80 is overwhelmingly greater than the enemy. 
So the, for, so the reality for them, the reality for them, they had nothing to lose. And today, we're going to learn from their story. I'm really glad that you've chosen to be with us today. I want to welcome those of you who are online with us. Thanks for taking the time to join in. And for all of those that that may be seated at a campus today, we're just really grateful to be together. Let me show you this most incredible story. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Look Look at what it says. It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. So here's the framework of where we've arrived in Luke's story, all right? We got a list of 12 apostles back in chapter 6. There were 12 that Jesus identified. But we knew that there were more who were following So by the time we get to chapter 8, we learn about a group of women who are also a significant part of Jesus' mission. Remember, we studied that a couple of weeks ago. And now, we're given this number. There are 72. And, And they are entrusted with a mission that they are sent ahead of Jesus. And they are announcing the news that Jesus is here. So here's the pattern. The 12 after they're called, are sent out in chapter 9 on what we would call a short-term mission trip. He sends them out, they come back. Now, we've got the 72 who also in chapter 10 are going to be sent out on a short-term mission trip, and then they're going to come back. But the picture all of this is leading to is that by the time we get to the book of Acts, which is the continuation of Luke's story, we're going to find out that all followers of Jesus are sent out. All of us. Wherever you are, Jesus is with you, but it is also the case that in the, he, is, he is sending you out, but this time it's not short term, it's permanent. It is extremely difficult to build any argument that it is okay for Jesus followers to simply keep to themselves. You can't build that from the Bible. Because Jesus makes it clear in every single of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as the book of Acts, you and I following him on a mission, we are to go with good news that Jesus died for sin, that he was buried, and on the third day he arose. And so what we do is we look for areas where Jesus is not yet known, and we go and we share good news with them. From that standpoint, we can learn some incredible truths from this story today. When I follow Jesus, when I'm living on this mission with him, when I'm sharing good news, what is expected of me? And what should I expect? Watch this. Verse 2. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. 
Okay, maybe not the pep talk you thought it might be, right? I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. I'm gonna try to summarize for you what I think Jesus is saying in the first part of this little story. Here's what he's saying. Depend completely on Jesus. Depend completely on Jesus on this mission What do we do? We depend completely on Jesus. You and I accomplish nothing of eternal significance on our own. We don't. The only one who holds the power to give us life is the only one with authority to determine our mission. It is Jesus' mission, it is Jesus' message, and it is Jesus' power. We depend completely on him. So here's here's how he says we do that, all right? For example, he says, we depend on him through prayer. Some of you are familiar with this, with this verse of scripture of ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers, right? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask him to send out workers. He says, we pray. That's part of how we depend on him. We pray. You do recognize you pray for what's important to you. You do. Some of you pray for your kids every day because right now your kids may be struggling with something, but you love your kids like crazy. So what do you do? You pray for them every day. Some of you are praying for your health because right now it might be a little shaky and suddenly health has become a priority and so it's important and so you're praying for your health. Uh, some of you might be praying for some finances right now. That's fine. You're going through something and you need, you need something solved and so it's important. You, you're praying maybe about some resources right now. What Jesus reminds us here is that what matters most in the whole picture is a harvest. And the harvest he's talking about here is people who will be brought to a believing faith in who Jesus is, a harvest of God's family, right, being assembled. And the question is, do you pray for the harvest? Do you pray for people to be sent? I I was thinking this week, even when we think about prayer, everybody tends to think about the Lord's Prayer, okay? So think about how the Lord's Prayer starts. Our Father, right, which art in heaven, right, hallowed be your name, That's how it starts, right? Holy, set apart, how great is your name. Now, after that, all kinds of things we're asking for, like give us our daily bread, but where does it start? It starts with the greatness of who he is. And that's what you're going to see all the way through, through, through Scripture, right? We want to see God's greatness known. We want to see his great name known in, in every heart that we come in contact with. And so we pray. Most of the time when we think of this verse, most of the time we tend to think of when we need God to send somebody. God, we need more workers over here, so will you send somebody? I find it interesting that Jesus brings this up as he is sending the 72. In other words, I'm just reminding you today that praying in terms of the mission is not just something you do for other people to be sent, but it also applies to you being sent. God, we are depending completely on you. 
You are the source and the strength. He tells us we also depend, though, on his people. They are sent out one by one. How does it say they're sent out? Two by two. That is so significant, I believe, that they are sent out in pairs. As your shepherd, I am never going to stop shouting this truth. It is not just Jesus in you. It's kind of a way of thinking in the culture in which we live. It's so individualistic that everybody just kind of wants to to go, it's just about Jesus and me. It really doesn't matter. It's just Jesus and me. No, it's not. No, it's not. It is Jesus in you, but it's also Jesus' family. And he has designed you to be on mission, but not alone in that mission, at least two by two. Let's keep going. He also tells us, to depend on him for protection. I got that from the whole little line about lambs among wolves. You're like, what is that about? Jesus is just reminding them this is dangerous. This is dangerous. If you don't get that, you probably see this more like a game. And he says, this is not a game. This is a war. And the enemy in this war only seeks to destroy. But he cannot defeat you When you belong to Jesus, when you are in Jesus and Jesus is in you, the enemy cannot take the house when Jesus owns the house. One more. Depend on him for resources. He uses language like don't take a purse or a bag or sandals. What's he teaching them? He's teaching them to trust him. Now, please listen to what I'm saying. Jesus, I, I don't think, is making a statement here that means we can never plan or save or prepare resources, right? Because there are other places in the Bible where it tells us that it's wise to, to save and to plan. That's not what he's doing. But what he's doing here is teaching this group of people, trust me, don't even take anything with you for this particular journey. I want you to trust me. It's the point that when we amass those things, That's not the key to victory. In fact, sometimes the more resources we amass, that's what ends up taking our attention. Because have you noticed that the more stuff you got, the more you got to figure out how to take care of it. The more you figure out how, you got to protect it, right? You got to manage it. You got to, the more you got, the more that becomes the point of focus. It's like we're hearing the call of the last chapter we studied when he said, don't let your stuff distract you. Jesus here even says, don't don't stop along the way. He's He's not saying being rude. He's not saying don't talk to anybody. He's just saying don't get caught up in things that are of no value. Stay focused. And the best way to stay focused on the mission, you ready? is to depend on him completely. That's how you stay focused. Some of you have been on short-term mission trips with Heart of Life Church, and you have gone to places in the world where you did not know the language, you were not familiar with the culture, 
You didn't even know geographically where you were in terms of where you needed to be that day and how to get there. You knew nothing and it made you depend on God for absolutely everything that happened in that short period of time. And many of you came back and went, that is like the greatest experience of my life. I wish I could live that way all the time. That's what Jesus is teaching the 72. This is where real life is found when you really learn to depend completely on him. Let's keep going. Verse five. Jesus says when you enter a house, First say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick. Who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. The second big truth I believe that Jesus teaches us out of this incredible story is that we need to learn to expect that some will receive your message. Some of you today just need your heart reignited to remember that as a, as a follower of Jesus and a carrier of the good news, there are people that are ready to receive the good news that you have. That's why the instruction Jesus gives is you're going to start with this blessing of peace, right? The, the word peace here means the opposite of divided, right? It is, to, it is to bring back together what has been separated. So I wonder when we get to the, all right, the book of Ephesians and the apostle Paul is talking about the armor of God. Remember that passage where he's talking about the armor that we put on to fight the fight. He says these words, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So how do we do that? He says, first of all, you need to learn to be patient. Be patient. Here's the thing he says. Stay there. Did you catch that? You come to a house and they're ready to receive this, this, this message. They, they are people of, of blessing. He says, I want you to stay there. I want you to take some time there. I want you to invest there. Here's a word to some of you. You are the people who always love to start new things. Some of you are that way. You always love to see things started, and that's fantastic. We absolutely need that. But the good news is supposed to come from everyone's lips and life. And the only way they can see it from your life is when you stay there. It's when you engage with someone and you stay with them. You're willing to invest in them. He also says not only be patient, but he says we are to be content. 
Be content. He uses language like eat and drink whatever they give you. Don't move around from house to house. The idea was I go to one house and they serve me this, but if I go to that house, I think it'll be a little bit better, right? I could stay here, but if I go to that house, it's, it's a little nicer. He's going, no, no, be content. Be content. I, I, have, I have watched this throughout ministry, both watching people on mission internationally and watching the church on mission at home. Sometimes there's a tendency that we always want to make our situation a little more comfortable. We always want to adjust where we're at to make it a little more comfortable. And when we do, sometimes we get completely distracted from the actual mission that we're called to. There's one more piece he gives to this. Be compassionate. Because these guys were given the power to heal the sick. Now, we are not all given the power to heal everybody we come in contact with. So our circumstance is different than what theirs was. However, we can pray for healing with every person that we come in contact with. And sometimes that is exactly what God wants to do in that person's life. But even if he doesn't, we all have the privilege of encountering people, of encountering people who have needs. And sometimes... The solution, God says, it's not that they are healed of whatever it is that they hurt from. Sometimes it's food. It may be shelter. Most often, it's presence. That people who are hurting and lonely, you demonstrate compassion and you are with them. He's like, you need to expect, you need to expect that there are going to people who, they're going to receive your message. They're going to listen to this good news. So be patient, be content, and be compassionate. But that's not always the case. Check it out. Next verse. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And then I want to skip to verse 16, and this is what he says. Whoever listens, whoop, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. Who's that? That's the Father. What's he saying here? Here's what he's saying. You also need to learn to expect that some will reject your message. Some are going to receive it, but some are going to reject it. What's the whole deal with the dust on the feet? Well, there was a, a, a rabbinic idea that the dust in the Gentile lands. Now, what were the Gentile lands? That was anything outside the territory of Israel. They believed that even the dust 
of the Gentile lands was defiled. And so a strict Jew, when they would come home to Palestine, would actually go to the business of even wiping the dust, the Gentile dust, off their shoes before they would step foot in their home. So what's happening here, I think the disciples are given instruction. that They are really declaring symbolically that where are they declaring this message? Inside Israel. These are towns inside the land of Israel. But these people are rejecting who Jesus is. Therefore, the message is they are no different than the way those Israelites see people on the outside. They don't belong to the family of God. I think the message here is don't, don't let opposition distract you from the mission. Don't let opposition, right, deter you from the mission. Have you forgotten how big this battle really is? Because really, who are they rejecting? Really, they're rejecting Jesus. That's what he says. This is not your kingdom. This is his. This is not your message. This is his. And unless you've just been an absolute jerk, which is possible, I've seen it, People who claim to be going in the name of Jesus can sometimes be jerks. And when you're a jerk, they're actually rejecting you. I've seen people not reject Jesus, but actually reject the people who who are hypocritical in how they follow Jesus. But what we're assuming here is that you're coming with blessing, right? You're speaking blessing to them. You're being hospitable to them. If they reject, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. There's a bigger picture. And so there's a part of you that has to learn to move on. But let's be careful here. I don't know that I've ever had to be so careful here as we do in the current culture in which we live. You and I, as Jesus followers, do not cancel anyone from the kingdom of God. We are not a cancel culture. You hear me? We don't cancel anybody. It is not a picture here of saying, hey, they, they don't like Jesus, then boop, you're out, I'm done, no more with you. No. God is the one who determines who rejects him in the end. You and I, when somebody rejects the good news that we share with them, what do we do? We keep on praying. In fact, we kick it up a notch. We continue to pray because we realize how big of of a situation this is. We continue to pray as long as they have breath. We don't cancel them. Because not only are they rejecting Jesus, but we got to realize they will face eternal consequences because of that decision. Jesus did really, Jesus did not leave any doubt here. People will be judged according to the degree of light they rejected. These people were seeing miracles. They had heard the good news preached to them, but they had turned away. And Jesus says there is accountability that comes with opportunity. Well, I got one more piece. And to be honest with you, we did all that because I really want you to get where Jesus lands this plane, all right? Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy. (laughs) 
we did it, right? Don't you know they were scared when they went out the first time? Like, can we just admit that? They're, they're human. They're, they're breathing. Like, don't you know they were scared? They come back, returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We'll talk about that. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's talk about this. I hope you understand today that this mission to which we've been called as Jesus followers is not simply a mission of convincing people by a good argument of the truth of the gospel so they will believe. It is not just winning an argument about who's right. It is not just a rational debate. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. It is a rescue operation into the supernatural realm of darkness. That's what it is. Where people, the Bible says, without Jesus are spiritually blind, cannot see the truth of who he is. The Bible says that people without Jesus are actually spiritually dead. We're not sick, we're dead. We are completely cut off from him. Relationship that has been severed. No peace with God. Those, those souls have to be awakened from the dead. Those souls have to be given sight in order to see. It is a supernatural operation where the world of Satan has to be overpowered that people can be rescued. It is an assault on evil forces that are super powerful. But Jesus says here that he saw Satan fall like lightning. What is he talking about? Well, I got to give you a little technical here. The, 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 the verb that we see here, the language that we see here is what's called an imperfect tense, which means it's continual. In other words, we, we could read it in the Greek language. What, what it is is I was watching. I, I was watching Satan fall like lightning. I was watching. It's continual. I was watching. In other words, you guys were out there, I, I sent you out there, and you were preaching, right, the truth about, about who I am, and as people were hearing and they were be being delivered, I was watching this happen. I don't think Jesus is talking about some one-time event in the past. The Bible does make reference back in the Old Testament that when, when, when Satan first, right, disobeyed God when he, when he first, his pride, right, thinks that he can be equal with God, it, it says that he falls from heaven. It's, it's the language that's used, but I don't think that's what this is referring to. I don't think Jesus is thinking back to his own temptation when he fought with the enemy. I don't think that's what this means. I also don't think it's just talking about a, a one-time event in the future. Some people say, well, maybe he's talking about the cross, 
or, 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 or maybe he's talking about the day in the very end of time where Jesus is going to defeat the enemy and he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire forever. I don't think it means any of those past and future, although I think Jesus saw all that. I think the language here of the lightning, which repeatedly flashes brilliantly and then it's gone, I, I think it is a picture of Jesus is rejoicing when he observes Satan's kingdom being destroyed one rescued soul at a time. And so the picture is these guys are out there and they're sharing the news. Jesus is here. The kingdom is here. And when that happens, what often takes place is there is one more flash of an enemy who tries to keep that from happening. But what happens is that that soul believes the truth of who Jesus is. They are rescued out of the domain of darkness. And Jesus said, I saw him fall. I kept watching like lightning over and over. And every time you shared and someone put their trust in him over over and over again, we saw an enemy defeated and the kingdom of God grow. I hope, I hope that you have a real glimpse of what you are called to in this mission. That this is not about you just learning some language so that you can argue somebody into something. No, this is about when you present the good news of Jesus. He supernaturally rescues out of darkness and brings people to life. When he uses snakes and scorpions here, people get freaked out about that. that I think he's just referring to the demonic. That's what it is. You'll see other places in the scripture where those symbols are used of, of the enemy and, and, and demons. All the Jews knew, because they had read their Bible, the Messiah had to have power over Satan. All the way from the third chapter of the Bible, it said that Satan would bruise his heel, but that he, the Messiah, would what? Crush his head. And so what we see in Jesus' ministry is this full-on display of power over the kingdom of darkness. They come back fired up. They say, we did it. We did it, but they're careful. We did it in your name. Did you catch that? In your name, the demons were subject to us. In, in other words, we know that it's by your power. We depended completely on you. They are pumped. They are fired up. They have just accomplished things that they have never been a part of before. And Jesus says, whoa, be careful. You need to rejoice in the truth that your names are written in heaven. What is that? What is he saying? Here's what I think he's saying. We got to learn to celebrate our relationship with Jesus more than even our ministry victories. Now, I'm going to say this again because this is for those of you who are dedicated. This is for those of you who are dug in. This is for those of you who ain't taking no bullets in the back because you are always running toward the fight. You're willing. You got courage. But the point is we got to learn to celebrate our relationship with Jesus even more than our ministry victories. Because when you serve and follow Jesus, 
Does it look like this always? Right? You serve and it's just always better and better. No. When you serve in this world, sometimes it looks like this and sometimes it looks like this. And it looks like this and then there are those who reject and it looks like this. When you're serving, there there really are ups and downs. But our salvation, our relationship with Jesus, this solid rock on which we stand, the assurance of that whom he saves, he keeps, that always gives us joy. Jesus is not saying don't ever rejoice in victories. Because I could preach other sermons to you where there are places in the Bible that he says, you need to pay more attention to the, to the victories that you have and you should celebrate those and remember. He's not saying don't ever celebrate victories. But what he's doing here is he's giving us perspective and he's saying our greatest joy should not be in seeing how God uses us to serve him. That's good. But that's not our greatest joy. Our greatest joy is that our names are written in heaven because we have a relationship with him. Some of us still attach our value to accomplishments. Just like we did before we met Jesus. So before we met Jesus, it was all about what what awards can we earn? How can we climb this ladder, that ladder? What what achievements can be made? And the more we achieved, the better we felt about ourselves. We attached our value to our achievements. And then we met Jesus. But the problem is, for some of us, we still at times are seeking the value from achievements. We've just switched kingdoms. And now we celebrate our achievements in the kingdom of God. And in a sense, some of us are only actually using Jesus to feed our ego. What can he help me achieve so that I feel more valuable? If you center your joy only on ministry accomplishment, there are going to be days Even like Jesus reminded in this story that there's rejection. There are times that the ministry doesn't look like it works. And your joy is going to be shaken if you don't settle your joy where it needs to be steady. It's in your relationship with him. You are already accepted. You are already loved. You are already there. That's what he says. Your names are. It's past tense. It's already done. This week, I stumbled onto an image. When I say stumbled, what I really mean is I think God, God directed me toward an image that I could learn something. It was, it was an image on an auction site. Um, it is a hat. This is the bill of the hat. And this is what the inscription read. This hat has been hand-signed by Jack Nicklaus, Hall of Fame. So whether you're a golfer or not, you have heard of Jack Nicklaus somewhere along the line, right? He's the the leading major winner, right, of of all time. Even Tiger hasn't caught him with with majors, all right? So hand-scribed by Jack Nicklaus, Hall of Famer, 
Arnold Palmer, Hall of Famer, uh, Gary Player, Hall of Famer, Chichi Rodriguez, one of the greatest golf names. He was a Puerto Rican golfer, just really good. Chichi Rodriguez, Hall of Famer. And then this is what it said. And one other. That was the description. And one other. And I was like, how sad is that? Like, why would you do that? Why would you put that description? Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, Chichi Rodriguez, and one other. There's only one other, just call his name. You know what I'm saying? But that was the description, and one other. And, and so I actually had to go figure out, because I had to, right, who is the one other, and, and the one other is actually Larry Loretti. That's his name. Larry Loretti. His story is after leaving the Navy, he became a, a, a golf pro at, at, you know, a particular course, and he, he played, right, some in the PGA Tour. Never won a tournament, ever. Never won a tournament. After he turned 50, he joined what's called the Champions Tour, which is like the, the older dudes that play, and he won a major when he was like 53 years old. That's his story. And suddenly he finds himself on the bill of this cap. He's the one other. Now, here's what I've learned. Some of you feel like Larry Loretti, don't you? When it comes to the kingdom of God, come on. Some of you, that's how you feel. You're like, I, you don't really believe you belong here, right? Abraham, he belongs on the hat. Moses, he belongs on the hat. Elijah, he belongs on the hat. David, he belongs on the hat. And one other. My name's Jeff. We just really don't feel like, listen, if that's how you feel, you do not really understand the grace of God. You don't. There was one other inscription on that item. It, it, this is what it says. Note, there are stains on the hat. And I was like, oh, that's good. Because isn't that exactly the truth about every single one of us whose names have ever been inscribed in heaven? There are stains in the background. Come on. The Bible says we all have what? Sinned. All. Every single one of us, there are stains. Every single one of us, we have rebelled. Every single one of us. But you got to read the next line. The next line. We all have sinned, but we all are justified. It means we all are made right with God freely by his grace, not because of how many majors we won in ministry, not, not by because how many, how many championships we've got in, in ministry. No, we all, all are made right with God freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. You are already accepted. You are already loved you already have a place there, so you do what you do not to achieve it but because he has declared you valuable. Understand his grace. By the way, sometimes I encounter people who are exactly the opposite, and they're the people who say, well, yeah, I belong on the hat. I know it's Jack Nicholas, and I know it's Gary Player. I know, I know it, but, but yeah, I belong on the hat because I'm just as qualified and I'm just as deserving. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. You don't understand God's grace either. 
Because it's not about achieving our way in. It's not about how we compare to one another. The warning, Jesus said it's the sick who need a doctor, not the people who think they deserve to be on the bill of the hat. It's the sick. It's those who depend completely on Jesus. To have your name engraved on a, a plaque. That's pretty cool. I mean, it is. Come on, you feel good. Something like that happens. You win an award. To, to have your name engraved on a trophy, that's pretty cool. But to be engraved in gold, <laughs> that's way better. And what does it say that our names could be etched forever in the halls of of heaven. I'll tell you, it gets even better than that. I'll preach you this sermon one day. Isaiah says, see, God says, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. How much rejoicing should we be a part of as the people of God? I don't need my name in ink and I don't need my name in lights because my name is engraved in the hands of the one who holds heaven and earth. So even when the earth shakes, I am secure. Even when the earth shakes, I have all hope. Even when the earth shakes, he says there is joy because I have learned. Look at it one more time. Learn to celebrate your relationship with Jesus more than your ministry victories. I hope you have many victories. I do. But you got to learn to celebrate what Jesus says is most to be celebrated. Here is your action this week, all right? You got no questions to write down. You're like, hold on, here's your action. I want you to find one person to help you do this this week. Here's what I mean. I want you to ask one person, pray for me. Will you pray for me every day this week that I will learn to celebrate my relationship with Jesus more than my ministry victories? All right? I don't care if it's your spouse. I don't care if it's your best friend. I don't care. But ask somebody to pray for you every day this week every day because we're going to go at least two by two we ain't going this alone two by two will you pray for me that i will learn to celebrate my relationship with jesus more than i celebrate the victories that may come all right i'm gonna pray for you and then we're gonna celebrate the truth that we have learned today Those of us, names that are written in heaven, if your name is not yet written in heaven because you have never put your trust in Jesus today, I want to invite you to do that. I invite you to turn to him. It's not about your magic words. It's about saying, Jesus, I I want to depend completely on you. Will you forgive my sin? Will you take over my life? And I want to follow you. I encourage you today to start, start in following him. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing. I'm going to ask you to just go ahead and stand with me if you're here. Wherever you are, I want to encourage us to stand together. Let me pray for us, and then we'll celebrate. God, 
there are some folks here today who need to learn to depend on you completely. God, for some of us, we've allowed some stuff of this world to distract us, and we need to learn to depend on you. God, I also pray for some folks here today who need to learn again to expect that people will respond to good news. God, you know in this old world in which we live, there's so much bad news that sometimes we stop expecting the good. You tell us to expect. Help us to do that. God, I pray for those who are letting rejection lead to defeat. God, help us to believe you. And most of all today, God, that we will learn to celebrate our relationship with you. May we never get over the truth of this miracle that our names are written down in heaven. So God, will you give your church the inability to do nothing? And will you give us courage to charge into enemy territory that whatever shots we may take, God, we're not going to take them in the back because we don't want to run. We want to follow you. And when it's all over, may the whole world know all victory was because of your great name. This is our testimony. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Can we celebrate the truth 